Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the top stories throughout the week was Texas. They were battered by a winter storm that left millions without power. And while much of that power has been restored after days and freezing temperatures, there's still a food and water crisis there. The events of the past week also exposed huge flaws in the Texas power grid. For more on this whole story, we'll speak to Josh Letterman, correspondent at NBC News. It was a whole combination of many different factors. You can think of energy systems like supply and demand. And here in Texas, you had a real one-two punch where the demand was off the charts because you had so many people freezing in their homes, turning up the heat, trying to warm their homes and businesses, creating all kinds of demand for electricity. And then on the supply side, you just did not have enough power to go around because you had so many power generators that were knocked offline because of the frigid weather. And although initially you had some politicians in Texas who were blaming the fact that some wind turbines that would normally be generating electricity had iced over and were not able to produce electricity, really the vast majority of the problem about why they didn't have enough power to go around in Texas had to do with those traditional sources. We call them thermal sources, but we're talking natural gas, coal, and even a nuclear plant that was knocked offline. In the case of those natural gas plants, which make up a large amount of the energy supply in Texas, you had issues like the pipes that bring the natural gas to those plants freezing. The fact that the state's had to make sure that homes got gas to heat their homes before they supplied it to the power plants that use that gas to make power. And in fact, looking at what the authorities there planned for on a cold day for what they'd need, renewable sources like wind and solar actually performed better compared to their expectations than did the old traditional sources like coal and natural gas. Tell me a little bit about their independent grid and why they're not attached to the rest of the U.S. And then the other problem was that weatherization efforts, they just really didn't make the attempt to go full bore on it. They only were kind of preparing for peak demand, like peak winter demand that they thought they could get through it. But the winter storm was much worse than they anticipated, and they just were not able to meet that demand later. Yeah, that's right. And those two things you just outlined are directly connected because the fact that the energy generation equipment in Texas was not weatherized is a direct result from the fact that they do have this independent energy grid. So Texas, they didn't want to be part of sort of the national system in which you basically have a huge network on the east side of the country and one on the west side of the country. It's all interconnected. So if power isn't really being generated in one part of the country. They can borrow at a time of need from another part and kind of equal everything out. That can't happen with Texas because it's disconnected from that grid. And they really wanted their independence from the federal government. This is a state where politicians for years have talked about seceding from the U.S. They value their independence. But one of the things that means is that the grid there in Texas, it's not subject to regulation from what's known as FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which says if you're going to have power lines that cross state lines, you're going to have to follow certain rules, like making sure that your power plants are able to withstand 
really cold temperatures, really hot temperatures, be able to operate under these conditions. Texas didn't have to follow those regulations because they kind of went on their own with their Texas energy grid. And as a result, they made the decision not to take the kinds of steps such as weatherizing their gas plants and their putting insulation on pipes, putting special coatings on their windmills that would make them able to operate even when you have all of this ice and cold temperatures. And now we see all the after effects. There's uh, food and drinking water shortages now. They're making recommendations that people have to boil their water before they use it. And hospitals also facing, you know, water pressure and heat shortages also. So these are just the far reaching effects of all of that. But what this whole thing does is it really shines a light on what happens in these extreme weather events, which we keep seeing more and more. Scientists predict this is going to happen more. And what do we rely on now? Batteries are still a long way off from being a chief source of uh, power storage, especially in these big states like this. And as I mentioned, you know, just climate change, these big weather events keep happening more and more and take a toll on these power grids. That's absolutely right. And we should note, you know, it's difficult to attribute any one particular weather event to climate change. But climate scientists tell us the kind of thing we're seeing in Texas is certainly more likely to happen in the future as the planet gets warmer and the climate less stable. And beyond that, even though the power issues in this case did not stem from wind and solar, as we move as a nation towards more reliance on renewable sources like wind and solar so that we can stop emitting as much and try to prevent further climate change, those sources are going to have some issues, such as the fact that the sun doesn't shine 24 hours a day, the wind isn't always blowing. And that's why our energy experts tell us that we're going to need to do a lot more as far as resilience, including those batteries that you mentioned. We're going to need to have ways to store power when we are generating it so that we can release it onto the system when we need it most and might not be able to generate it. That technology is coming very quickly. It's developing. It's still very expensive, but it's the kind of thing that major companies are working hard to try to get scaled up so that we can have more reliable system and hopefully prevent folks in Texas and everywhere else in the U.S. from having to go through things like this ever in the future. Josh Letterman, correspondent at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. The vaccine rollout continues, but the process of getting a coronavirus vaccine appointment can seem like trying to get a PS5 with all available appointments gone before you know it. This can especially be hard if you're helping out a parent or grandparent navigate some of the sites. Part of the problem is poorly designed websites and also too many vaccine sites from state, local, and hospitals all having their own web portals. For tips on how to master the vaccine appointment websites, we'll speak to Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist at The Washington Post. This is a case study in how more technology does not always make things run better. So the federal government is in charge of buying the vaccine and giving it to the state. So the states made their own websites and systems for people to book appointments. Then within states, counties made their own systems for people to, uh, and websites for people to book uh, appointments. Then local hospitals and clinics made their own systems with the supply they were getting. Then on top of that, now we have pharmacies this week in particular opening up with a new direct supply from the feds, CVS, Walgreens, with their own systems and apps. Takeaway from this is like, there are so many websites that you have to check. There's no centralization going on here. So if you want to get these really precious high-demand appointment slots, 
in many cases, you have to basically make it your full-time job to check websites all day long and press reload on them and try to hunt out scraps of information that might uh, give you a little bit of an advantage to you know, book that appointment before somebody else does. It actually has a lot in common with snagging Beyonce tickets. You know, the same skills that are involved yeah. in being kind of an extreme online shopper are involved here, except we're asking senior citizens to do this. More than 40% of senior citizens in America don't even have broadband internet at home. So this is a real big equity problem. It's really failing seniors and also people of color and other sort of communities that are really at risk from this virus. Yeah. And as I mentioned, people that are helping their parents and grandparents do it sometimes in other states. Mm-hmm. Um, that would my, be. So, exactly. I noticed that in your article, some of my coworkers were trying to do the same thing. So there's difficulties all around. Uh, okay. Let's get into the tips on some of the best practices for this. First off, it's going to most, most likely take multiple attempts to get through on this. So don't be discouraged and you got to stick with it. But one of the things you mentioned is have all of your information ready to be easily copy pasted. Cause in a lot of these websites, every single time you have to re-enter that information. So there's all this information that we discovered by experimenting with these websites that they were going to be asked to enter in some cases, every time just to check if there were appointments available. I'm talking about you know, ID stuff, your uh, health insurance codes and cards and all that kind of stuff. One of the things that would have made that go a lot better for my parents, we discovered later on, is if they just typed it all into a word processing document that was on their computer in front of them. Because you're gonna have to enter this stuff in so many times. And look, a lot of seniors are a little bit slower at typing and it's not their fault. You know, As you get older, it's harder to you know, type really fast. So just put it in one place so you have it, you can copy and paste it in. Yeah. And when time is of the essence, you know, in the time that it takes you to type that stuff out, all the vaccine appointments might have been booked up. That's what's happening across the country right now to millions of people. They're just taking so long to type in the information that the appointments are gone. And that's just so frustrating. Don't be afraid of using the phone. Everybody's, you know, sending people to the websites, but there are also people that can help you out by phone. California has a line you can call. Massachusetts has a line just for seniors to help them. Definitely, you're, you're going to see the pharmacies and other people trying to direct people through the internet because it's more efficient for them. It's more efficient for them to have you, you know, reloading their website all day to try to figure out when new stuff comes online. But look, if you're a senior and you're not comfortable with that, that's okay. Find this phone number. You might have to stay you know, on hold for a while or whatever it is, but it is available to you. And related to that, like, look, again, if you're a senior that just doesn't have the equipment or the expertise to do this, like look for help. There are actually a lot of groups around the country that are trying to sort of be vaccine angels and, and, and connect people with resources. You know, if you don't know where to find one, just call your local public library. Librarians are really smart and they're totally connected into their communities and they'll know who can help you. One of the lines that I love in your article, the people having the most success getting appointments are the ones with the best information. So one of the key tips mm-hmm. would be, to sign up for alerts, you know, so you know when the doses are coming. You know that on this day they're going to have doses. Let's get really busy on trying to sign up. There's, you know, various kinds of alerts available from all the sorts of different authorities who have the vaccine. In some cases, the alerts are actually sort of disappointing. Like in California, pretty much if you sign up for the alerts, all that you'll get is a text message when your particular demographic is able to get a shot, but other places they're getting more tailored, more specific in the alerts. Or beyond that, this is all about information. So 
hunt out these scraps of information you can about when a new vaccine comes online. Like, for example, in Florida, you get the vaccine through Publix, the uh, supermarket that has a pharmacy in it. People learned that Publix puts the new appointments online at 7 a.m. every morning. So that meant that like at 6.55 in Florida, people are there at the public website, <laughs> pressing reload, ready to go to get it. Ultimately, that's how my parents got their shot. My mom was just pressing reload on this site because she heard a tip on the local TV news that they were going to be adding some new slots that day. Last question I have, I guess it's a twofold question. How long did it take you to get your parents' appointment? And just like the last overall big tip, like what is going to push people through on these sites the most? It took us probably about two weeks once it was really available to them in Massachusetts. Um, and I learned a lot from that process and I you know, share the sort of learnings from that in, in my piece. Let me give you a two-part answer to, to your deceptively <laughs> simple question. Right. The thing that matters the most is being persistent. The people who are getting these shots are the ones who are just either them or their, their loved ones or their helpers are just kind of hammering it every day and not giving up because this really matters. It's really important. But the thing we didn't talk about, but I just wanted to like flag that people really need to be careful about is fraud. There are a lot of sketchy people out there and they're taking advantage of the lack of information in this moment and the fear about it to try to take advantage of seniors. Folks should definitely be very careful. Look at the source of the information. Start your journey and figuring this out on authoritative websites, you know, either on government websites, or if you don't know what those are, go to the Washington Post. We've got links to all of them. AARP has links to all of them. And if somebody you know, sends you an email or text messages you about an appointment, that could be legit, but it also might not be. So get on the phone and call whoever said that they were reaching out to you and make sure it's really them. Because the last thing you want to do is end up, you know, having your identity stolen or someone taking the money or whatever. Like, it's sad, but, but it is a thing that folks need to be aware of. Jeffrey Fowler, tech columnist at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. You bet. More on the coronavirus. We've been in this good news, bad news phase. The bad news continues to be these coronavirus variants that are taking hold across the United States. But the rate of infections are starting to trend in the right direction, and hospitalizations are also going down. And while we're seeing these better numbers, experts are divided on why. They chalk it up to four different possibilities. Good behavior and mask wearing, improved vaccine distribution, changing seasonality, and more cases going undetected because of less testing. For more on why the coronavirus cases are dropping, we'll speak to Reese Thibault reporter at the Washington Post. I don't think anyone knows the right answer why these numbers are going down. And I, I don't think it'd be accurate to isolate one factor and say that that's the definitive reason. But experts are floating a number of possible explanations. So the four I get into in my story are good behavior. You know, people obeying uh, social distancing guidelines, right. wearing masks, that kind of thing. And then getting vaccines. We're seeing a quickening pace of vaccinations. And then the possibility that the data is actually lying to us, that it might be obscuring something and that um, maybe cases aren't dropping quite as much as we're seeing in the numbers. And then there's this issue of seasonality. Yeah. So the virus is a respiratory virus and we know that respiratory viruses tend to slow their spread in warmer climates. So let's expand on, on all of these. Obviously, even you make mention in the article too, there's caveats with everything and we don't mm -hmm. know exactly. So first off, good behavior, you know, mask wearing, social distancing, among everything, that really seems to be the thing that really helps keep the virus at bay. Throughout the entirety of the pandemic so far, when people are strict about these things, 
cases are not spreading as much. And when things mm-hmm. get relaxed, we see the numbers boom, as we saw during the holidays and, and all that. So uh, that really is cheap among them. I think you got to keep practicing those things because that's really what helps a lot. But vaccine distribution, let's get into that one a little bit. You know, we need about 70 to 90% of people to getting vaccines for it to be super effective, they say. I think we're about 12% at last count. So what are we seeing there? The folks that are chucking these falling numbers up to vaccines, they're pointing to the rising rates of vaccination. So last week, we saw about an average of 1.6 million vaccinations administered per day. That's a pretty impressive number, especially considering President Biden set the benchmark at 1.5 million. And there were a lot of people who said after he noted that, that that might be a little lofty. But last week we met and exceeded that. So that's a good sign. But a lot of leading epidemiologists have said it's just too soon for vaccines to be having a major impact. You know, like you said, if there were some 40 million people who have received at least their first dose, that's about 12% of the U.S. population. And that's well short of that herd immunity threshold of 70 to 90%. So vaccinations are probably helping a bit, but I think it's too early to attribute this big dent all to vaccines. Seasonality. That's an interesting one, you know, with respiratory diseases, obviously in the cold months and winter and all that, these things usually seem to climb up. I guess we're going to be coming out of flu season also pretty soon. So they're saying that this could be very helpful to us where we'll see a drop in this from now until at least August or so. Like you said, you know, with other with other respiratory viruses, we've seen that fall off when the weather starts to improve. And kind of looking ahead in the calendar, that's a positive point here. As for right now, I don't know. In D.C., it's not very warm. It still feels very much like the winter. We're seeing freezing temperatures everywhere right now. So that's much more of a, you know, maybe in the weeks to come, we'll be having a, a positive impact. But as for impacting the numbers right now at this moment or in the weeks prior, that's a little harder sell, I think. As far as cases going undetected, this is a very interesting one. We're obviously very focused on vaccine distribution. And what we might be seeing is kind of a decrease in testing, maybe even a reduced demand for testing uh, mm-hmm. as, uh, you know, more people kind of have gotten it uh, and so and so. So that's an interesting one. Help us walk through that one. You remember in the thick of the winter surge, there was just this explosion in cases and there was a similar explosion in people getting tested. And coming out of that winter surge, you know, there was a backlog of tests that didn't get processed over the holidays. And as they were processed, we saw in the numbers, there was another spike. And folks have said that maybe a bit of an artificial spike just sort of processing the backlogs. But what it means is when we've seen in weeks following the numbers go down, they're coming down from an even higher peak. But it is still important to note that testing actually has fallen off. It's fallen off steadily over the last few weeks from, I think, in early January, there were about 2 million tests being processed per day. And now I think we're about 1.5, 1.6 million per day. That is pointing to the fact that, you know, maybe fewer people are getting tested and fewer cases are being captured. But you also have to look at hospitalizations, which are going down as well. So, you know, that's a reason to be hopeful that this only plays a minor role, if one at all. Reese Tebow, reporter at The Washington Post, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Oscar. Don't forget to join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.